If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. This week on Equity, we're talking about GitHub's new parent in Redmond, Domo's nasty numbers, the big money heading to the scooter world, and data miners' huge rays. Hello and welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Connie Loises. My colleague Matthew Lindley is traveling this week, but we do have Crunchbase News editor Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And our guest this week is Brian Asher, who's been a partner with a venture firm Venrock down in Palo Alto for the past 20 years. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, happy to be here. I like Palo Alto. There's nothing to do down there, but the weather is actually the most ideal climate in the entire world. And if you go to General Catalyst's office, they have one hell of a porch, if I recall correctly, where you can sit. It's fantastic. Well, we're, we're finally getting good coffee, so things are looking up. <laughs> that is, that's kind of, wait, who's coming in? Uh, Verve is moving in, and we've had Blue Bottle, so, oh, and Phil's. Oh, that's wow. great. But I always understand, everyone complains that Palantir, like, basically owns all of Palo Alto. Is that still the, the, the situation? Other than the coffee shop. It's true. <laughs> While we're off topic already, I'm sorry, Connie What's up first? Sure. So the biggest tech news of the week, uh, it's probably fair to say, was the $7.5 billion all stack, stock excuse me, acquisition of GitHub by Microsoft, which is the second biggest deal for Microsoft since C- CEO Satya Nadella began leading the company in 2014. Now, if you have not heard of GitHub, uh, you either don't live in the Bay Area or you are not a developer, which is okay. The company broadly described is an open software platform that's used by 28 million programmers who share their programming tools and code. And most of these developers use the pl- pra- excuse me platform for free in what are sort of digital storage spaces called repositories. But a lot of companies also create their own storage spaces. And it turns out that Microsoft actually is a company that um, has a huge presence on the platform. But this is a big deal for a whole lot of reasons. It's, it's a big deal else? for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, one, the dollar amount's massive. Absolutely. Two, this is indicative of a big change over at Microsoft. I mean, back in the old days, Balmer, I think, notoriously called Linux a cancer, uh, which is a phrase that has been essentially stuck to their ethos uh, externally for a long time. And now we have Microsoft uh, kind of under Satya and a little bit before pivoting towards working with Linux. They support Linux on Azure. Uh, they contribute to open source projects. And uh, now they own kind of the crown jewel of open software development, if I can put it that way. So my first thought was hot dang. And then I wanted to dig in the numbers. But quickly, what was your first reaction to this? I think it's a smart move on their part. I mean, they, they, have, they have such a strong developer presence globally, particularly in enterprise, and this is a very, very smart move. And, you know, the big question is how will developers react? But I think they have shown good restraint with LinkedIn and how they have left that largely alone. And I expect to see few big changes uh, in the short term. I wish they actually done a lot more to LinkedIn, because I think LinkedIn needs help, whereas GitHub kind of works. Um, but for the reason why we're talking about this today on the show is that uh, GitHub was a very valuable venture-backed uh, company, making this exit another bit of unicorn liquidity. Uh, but I was prepping for today's show, and I came across some old numbers that I thought I'd throw out so we can kind of get a feel for this. Um, in 2015, according to Eric Newcomer's reporting uh, then at Bloomberg, he said that GitHub's actual P&L was revenue of $95 million back in 15. And losses of 27 million, which for a VC-backed company at its stage, that's 
just fine. That's completely okay. Uh, and then the first six months of 2016, they had revenue of 98 million and losses of 66. And so that implies a much greater pace uh, of loss, if you will, or just, you know, just nonprofits. Ha ha. Uh, and then so thinking about where they are now, I'm not surprised they sold. This is probably the moment in which they were kind of at the decision point of raise more capital or find a new home. They were also talking to Google, but uh, to end up in Redmond isn't the most shocking thing given their uh, venture timeline, if you will. Yeah, I suspect they weren't exactly under financial duress, given the availability of capital in today's markets. Uh, but they must, must have had a pretty good meeting of the minds uh, with Satya and, and felt like this was a pretty good price for them and, and their investors. Well, they also get a CEO out of the deal. I think they had been looking for one for quite some time, and Nat Friedman, a Microsoft executive, is taking over, which is great. Um, but to your point, Alex, about the outcome, yes. So a number of firms have done really well. Uh, the one that keeps, was sort of talked about the most this week is Andreessen Horowitz, which wrote this company a $100 million check back in 2012. And I remember being sort of stunned, along with a lot of industry observers at the time, because those those are numbers that right now we're sort of accustomed to seeing. Back then, it was like, what? $100 million into a company? Uh, and it was sort of one of its earliest funding rounds, I think. It was in Series A, if I recall correctly, which that's still a large number for a Series A today, even with the much you know weirder climate that we live in. It was actually uh, June 9th, 2012. Okay. Yeah. So so huge outcome, presumably, for them. I don't know, how, of course, how much of the company they own, but uh, let's, let's assume it was a sizable amount. Uh, also, Sequoia Capital made out in the deal. They had uh, led a $150 million round in the company in 2015. And per Axios, Thrive Capital, which is a New York-based venture capital firm led by Joshua Kushner, uh, brother of White House advisor Jared Kushner, um, apparently had um, invested something like $120 million in the company by buying up employee shares. This was right. leaked to Axios, let's assume, by maybe somebody at Thrive Capital. But anyway, they so, great outcome. That. <laughs> so great outcome, uh, presumably, for uh thrive as well. Also, uh, more reporting uh, indicated that Andreessen uh, brought back about a billion dollars uh, for its aggregate investment into into GitHub. So that's oh, a wow. solid okay. 10x Great. over about six years, uh, which I think even in VC land is a pretty positive IRR. That'll that'll make everyone pretty happy. Um, sure, especially when Andreessen has sort of famously raised these huge funds, so you know has to return a lot of money. So. That's you know just another sort of data point suggesting maybe they can pull it off after all. Yeah, we were just talking about uh, Venrock's um, fund history before we started recording, and we had noticed that it's about 450 million of fund consistently throughout time, and that is kind of an old school model of raise what you know how to in, uh, deploy effectively, and then stay in your lane. And Reason has not done that. They've they've set kind of they set records back in the day for how much they were raising for these venture funds, and people were curious: can you ever actually generate VC return in the right time frame against that scale of capital taken on? And maybe for this one fund by then, maybe the answer is going to be yes. But there's still open questions, if you will, about their other funds. That is the hard part about a big fund when you start to walk back from the math required to produce a multiple on numbers that large. Sometimes the big wins aren't even big enough to move move the pile. Uh, but you know, you, you play a global game and you write big checks, and, and that's how you solve for that equation. Um, but one of the biggest windfalls, I thought this was the most surprising thing about this deal that I read this week. It was in Bloomberg. Uh, they had partnered with equities on this marketplace that sort of sells secondary shares. But they had reported that um, the founders of the company, Tom Preston Werner, Chris Wanstroth, and PJ Wyatt, uh, they, they sort of figured out that they owned something like half of the shares, which would, in this all-stock deal, be equivalent to 73.8 million shares. And the ownership of 
those shares would sort of put them in, above Satya Nadella, above Brad Smith, and they would be a second only to Bill Gates, who owns 1.3.4% of Microsoft, which is nuts. Wow. Well, the the best part of commentary on this is, I think it was a Jason Limkin tweet. Um, Jason, again, was the first guest on our show, so shout out to him. Uh, he said that it's hard if you're the CEO of a company to buy something that's going to create shareholders that own a lot more of the company than you. And he said that's why some billionaires can make different kinds of deals that other CEOs can't because they don't have that same ego position. So I think the point was like, good job to Microsoft's you know broader executive team for not getting caught up in that little bit of optics because that's all it really is. Satya's still in charge. They're still subsidiary. But um, maybe Satya can kind of finagle a raise out of all of this. Like, come on, guys. And what do you think? I mean, I don't. You, you're not an investor, so I think that's what, what the company's most direct competitor is. Maybe GitLab. I think there's a few, and uh, Atlassian has tools that would would compete in some okay. respects. Okay. I just wondered if this makes you know. I think it was thrown out there probably by one of GitLab's investors that it makes the company much more valuable than it might have been before. Yeah. I don't know if I mean if you're GitLab, you just VC hat, you would agree. But well, you're certainly mm-hmm. going to go after trying to steal developers, playing the Microsoft's the bad guy. Look at what happened. You come to us. So we'll right. see how that plays right, out. Though. Right. I, I, there was a right before the show. There was an AMA on Reddit with the uh, p- potential new GitHub CEO if the deal closes. But you know he'll it'll close and he'll become the the new executive of GitHub. And uh, he was answering these questions. Um, and so I was reading through this to prep to see how developers were reacting. And there was some negative reaction, but a surprising amount of positivity. Uh, I think Microsoft did this at the earliest possible time they could with a developer credo they were trying to build in the open source community. A year ago, they wouldn't have had the standing to do this and pull it off. Um, but I think they finally earned their position at the open source table by investing in those communities. Um, and so, oddly enough, Microsoft is now the owner of GitHub. I can't get over how dumb that sounds to me. Um, but anyways, it happened. It's going to be a thing. And it's good for Andreessen. So there you go. Venture capital in 2018. <laughs> Congratulations. Yes. Uh, and that brings us actually uh, from a positive story, if, if I may, to something else that's a little bit more uh, dicey, which is um, Domo's IPO filing. So in the last week, a company that everyone has heard about, uh, in the venture world at least, um, filed. And the rumors uh, were mostly true, as it turns out. So Domo does something with business intelligence and data, and it goes to your phone, and you can kind of run your business from your phone, theoretically. I don't know why you'd want to do that. It's like running a spaceship from a hand calculator. <laughs> but sure, if you're really lazy and can't open your laptop and sit down for five minutes to run your business, you can do it on your phone. Um, Domo was rumored to have had revenue problems back since like 2015. Uh, 2015, sorry. And that that's that's borne out mostly. So the company raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Like $700 million. Like $700 million. And delivered trailing revenue in the last four fiscal quarters reported of $95 million, And uh, subscription ARR in their most recent quarter of 106.7. Well, some other numbers that might interest uh, listeners that, that looked pretty bad uh, was $72 million in cash as of April. It had burned through a $100 million credit line. Um, it was like, I guess it burned through $37 million in cash most recently. In the, oh, I'm sorry, in the most recent quarter. Anyway, basically, this is a company that was is going out of uh, running out of capital, uh, and has said very publicly through its filings, "We have to raise this money, or you know, we're going to have to sort of make some serious operational changes." Right, right. So while we have a, an investor in the room, here's here's my thing: if a company is still spending more per quarter just on sales and marketing than it generates in revenue this many years into its history, that would imply a very inefficient sales process. Well, th- this is a heavy sale. 
you know, they do try the land and expand of sell to a department and then gradually spread. But I think the prize they're going after is being across all of the departments in an enterprise. Can you, Brian, just for a second, explain a little bit better to us what Domo does? Because it's really not clear to me based on Alex's description. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that wasn't enough? Or do you, do you uh, know well enough to give I, us a shot? I, so- I will attempt. Okay. <laughs> so, so think of this as uh, business intelligence in the cloud and democratized for access by all the employees across all departments. Now, with with permission controls, of course, but essentially they're trying to grab financial data, sales data, marketing data, HR data, whatever kind of operational data, bring it into their um, data warehouse, Mm -hmm. manipulate it, cleanse it, data comes in needing a lot of of massaging before it's really uh, usable, and then provide analytics and visualizations, as you said, to mobile phones and to a variety of dashboards. And that requires a lot of coordination. Those are not quick, easy sales. They may start small, but to grow really big in a Fortune 500 company, it's not surprising that it, that's a long, slow build. And I was looking at their numbers, and their actual um, customer retention or revenue retention in the enterprise segment is pretty good. It's like 115%, which means whomever they're losing, they are more than making up for by account expansion. So, and they're also upselling their clients? Is that or, Absolutely. Okay, okay. Sure. Who, who are its most direct rivals, and how are they faring, and are they public companies? Well, Tableau okay. uh, does certainly the uh, analytics and data visualization piece, and they're an $8 billion company. And it is a very important category of software uh, that has a lot of large incumbent players, uh, many of whom have architectures that are really heavy mm-hmm. and really hard to deal with. And so I think that is the bull story here of, you know, there needs to be a next generation uh, that is easier to use and a lower total cost of ownership. And I think that's what they're playing for. I think what people also don't like about this filing uh, is, well, I think some reports have come out subsequently about Josh James's spending. I don't know if you have any thoughts about this that you would talk about publicly, but so the CEO of... Uh, this company had previously co-founded another company, a web analytics company called Omniture, that sold to Adobe, I think, in 2009 for $1.8 billion. So you can sort of see why investors got so excited about his newest company. Which is in a similar space. So this is like his right, right. domain. Well, he had sort of said there was this opportunity that he'd seen based on his last company that he wanted to sort of dive into. Uh, but apparently he has been, you know, I think, maybe Bloomberg had said, using the company as his own personal piggy bank, which is a little bit harsh. But for example, uh, using uh, spending $1.6 million on a private jet, which to the you know reporter at Bloomberg's point, this is something that you see sometimes with publicly traded companies, but not necessarily with cash burning startups. Uh, he has also apparently used his family's catering company, which could look terrible, could also be sort of reasoned away, I'm sure, in certain ways. I don't know if there's sort of anything here to see or if it's... At a minimum, you should understand that the optics going to be very bad. I mean, like you're walking into a buzzsaw. If you spend, I mean, their gap net loss uh, last quarter was 45 million off of 32 million in revenue. And if you're spending that much money on a private jet and expensive catering, maybe you shouldn't be. One, it's a bad business choice, and two, you know you're going to get the story read about you every single time. <laughs> How did you not know that you were going to look and find this and write about it? You have to be incredibly arrogant, 
or incredibly arrogant. I don't see any other answer for this. And it's also just bad business practices. Fly Southwest. It's cheap. <laughs> It'll still get you there. Well, Builds also, character. I think what's interesting is, so Omniture raised $80 million. Of course, it was a completely different time, but from a half a dozen investors, this company has raised, like we said, $700 million, And it seems like everybody under the sun is on, in this deal. Fidelity. Excuse me, BlackRock, Founders Fund, Andreessen Horowitz, GGV, uh, Jeff Bezos's company, TPG. So it's I don't know what to make of that, except that it seems like nobody has been really maybe paying attention and sort of, uh, or of course that's a cynical viewpoint, or everyone sees this as being you know hugely promising. Again, Brian, tell us, give it to us candidly. <laughs> well, look, second time entrepreneurs who've hit it out of the park once get get a little more leeway, sure. and you know he is a. Uh, charismatic, uh, big picture uh, leader, and, and that does help in selling big, expensive, you know, enterprise deals. Uh, so I, I think they they cut him some slack. Now, as a public company, you're going to be under a lot of scrutiny and uh, showing consistent improvement in margins and uh, earnings are going to be important. So I think the bigger story is what happens in the future, not whether or not his uh, you know family member got some catering business for tuna sandwiches. Right. I don't think it was tuna sandwiches because those are gross. But um, <laughs> so one thing. Maybe that, some tuna sandwiches. Connie, Connie's point that I can be a little bit snarky is valid. And so what I'll do is uh, I did some math this week looking at Domo's offering through the lens of venture capitalists' favorite SaaS metrics, because this is a fair way for me not to be in charge, but to use venture capitalists' own metrics to judge the business, and therefore we can see how, from the VC perspective, they're doing, because everyone knows I'm kind of a dick. All right. So, uh, uh, the magic number uh, is a fun calculation for figuring out sales efficiency. You want to have a number of, if it's greater than one, that's fantastic. Spend a lot of money. Uh, if it's less than 0.75, generally speaking, VCs will say, you need to work on your model and get better product market fit to make your sales process more efficient. Uh, calculated two different ways. Um, their magic number was, I think, 0.2 and 0.3. So that's really terrible. Uh, on the rule of 40, which is if you add your growth rate and your profitability, they should add to at least 40. So if you're going 60%, you can be 20% profitable. 40, you win. They were, oh, where did this go? Negative 95 and negative 76. So that's not very good. And uh, Brian just made a pained face. <laughs> you, see, this is why we should do video on the show sometimes because that was great. And then if you, uh, so Dave Kellogg, who's also a, a, a member of the broader SaaS community, has a great term called the hype factor, which is uh, VC divided by ARR. And uh, Domo's hype ratio is 6.4. So for every, uh, uh, they take $6.4 of, of VC money to make a dollar of ARR, which is bonkers and bad. So, I, I don't understand this offering. I don't know how it got here. Um, I don't know how they kept spending the way they did. Um, but you know, even by the VCs on metrics, this is a bit of a mess. And uh, one of my favorite IPO uh, consultants actually on Twitter was like, if this goes public, it's proof that things are a little bit weird again on the public side, which is not a problem we've had recently. Um, so I'm, I'm very curious how prices. Okay, so let's move on to Bird and Lime. So we love talking about scooters on this program, as longtime listeners probably know. And there was a little more funding craziness in the world of electric scooters uh, again this week. Okay, so one is a sort of continuation of a deal we talked about last week, Bird, a year-old Santa Monica company that uh, has been plunking down its scooters in a growing number of markets, including most recently Denver, which I believe promptly told them to remove their <laughs> scooters. Um, but anyway, so Bird... Uh, was last week reported to be raising about 150 million at a one billion dollar valuation, and a new filing surfaced this week that shows that number might be closer to 200 million, which is not a huge surprise. 
But it's a lot of money. The company had raised $15 million in Series A funding in January and another $100 million in Series B funding in March. Meanwhile, one of its biggest rivals, Lime, uh, which was founded here in San Francisco a little more than a year ago, is reportedly close to sealing up $250 million in new funding that's being led by Google's early stage venture firm GV. And it also includes earlier participants and uh, fundings for this company, including Andreessen and Co2. I think what's interesting here is Spin is always described as sort of like the third leg of this competition. And poor Spin was founded before these guys. Um, and sort of like Lime, it started off with e-bikes and, uh, you know, sort of introduced uh, scooters later, whereas um, Bird kind of flew out of the gate, har har, with scooters. Oh, that <laughs> was so bad. So bad, so bad. Anyway, um, Spin has just raised $8 million so far, which is Interesting. So, I, I mean, I, either these guys have to raise funding soon or they're going to be sort of elbowed aside, I think, sort of like some of the early rideshare companies were by Lyft and Uber. Yeah. I mean, we, we all forgot about it. Was it Get Around or something? Right, there right. there well, was another Get Around one. is still well, that, around. Yeah, that, oh. That's more car share. I yeah, think you're yeah. thinking of uh, like Sidecar. Sidecar. Yeah, that's exactly. it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, my only thought is it depends on where they're expanding. Because one thing that I didn't realize when I first started to cover OFO and Mobag in China on the bike sharing startups uh, world and also these companies is they have very high capital costs. So when a software company raises you know $100 million, we know that's going to be mostly spent on staff and uh, just bodies. These companies, if they want to expand to Denver, for example, have to go out and buy several thousand scooters that cost $400 a piece or whatever it is. It's quite a lot of capital. If spend is only really around here, I don't know their overall geographic makeup, but I mean, maybe that's why that... I see so many spin scooters here, but they haven't raised that much capital. Or maybe they're super efficient. I don't know. It does seem like capital is going to matter. You know, you're playing for two sort of natural monopolies. One is the density, so that your riders always have a scooter available. And two is it feels like the uh, local municipalities are only going to give so many licenses, maybe two, maybe three at the outside. And so you got to be one of those players and you want to lock up your territories. San Francisco, I think, is talking about giving up to five companies permits. But as everyone in San Francisco knows, all of our scooters sort of disappeared abruptly uh, <laughs> over the weekend. I guess Spin pulled its bike or its scooters first okay. and then Bird and Lime on Monday because they have to apply for permits, which I think they did on Wednesday. And then the, it'll be sort of, I think, decided by the end of this month whether or not they receive those. I think the thinking is that they will. Yeah, I think they will. But I mean, if you think about it, so Bird, Lime, Spin, mm -hmm. that's three. If there's going to be five licenses, that theoretically leaves one apiece for Lyft and Uber if they don't partner. Well, Jump. So Uber bought Jump bikes, but mm -hmm. Jump is, I would guess, going to get into scooters as well. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> you heard it here first, everyone. Okay. So <laughs> if that's the case, then they would take it, then Jump would take up one of the fourth licenses. Right, and Lyft has talked about so I can see oh, right, it filling so up Lyft all five what, pretty Lyft, what, Was it reported that they have like e-scooter designs or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, here is the thing: I didn't notice when all the scooters went away because I only ride them about once a week. I don't. I didn't miss. I didn't even really notice so much. I don't think they're as bad as people make them out to be. I, I don't think before, so but. either. Uh, you know, Kevin Roos of the New York Times had just published a story this week saying uh, I wanted to hate them, but I love them, and he had some points. You know, saying a lot of the complaints can be kind of diffused pretty easily. You know, in terms of where they were left, like come up with. You know, if not like docking stations every half a mile or so, maybe there could be things on city blocks where it'd be sort of like metered parking. And he said everyone's complaining about how ugly they are. But think about how ugly cars are. We're just so accustomed to seeing them. Frankly, these things are pretty innocuous in comparison. I thought his article was very good. And it's no wonder he had a great experience. He was riding them along the 
bike path, in the beach Santa path Monica. in Santa Monica. Like, <laughs> right. what could be bad on, right. on, a, on a beach bike path? Uh, but he did miss one argument, I thought, which is it's not so much the eyesore or they're blocking the sidewalk while they're stored. It's people get scared of riding them in the street and then ride them on the sidewalk. And that is the scary part. Well, he mentioned, and uh, our guest last week had mentioned this as well, that it would be great if cities would accommodate these to reduce their congestion by creating sort of dedicated scooter lanes, which I would love to see. Over time, it's going to be great. <laughs> like, I think cities will transform over the next 10 years between autonomous vehicles and, and ride share and the e-bikes and the e-scooters. Like, it will be wonderful. We just have to get from here to there right. and without I, too many and fatalities. And I do think we'll see less uh, cars to accommodate these uh, sort of micro vehicles. But you raised the kind of the next question, which is how long until someone dies on one of these? Because it's going to happen. It'll happen. But you, another point you raised. How long is this podcast? <laughs> uh, usually yeah. about 25 minutes until the producer begins to shout and then we stop at 30. <laughs> but you said, you know, of course he had a great experience because he was on the beach in Santa Monica. What's to complain about? But he, Kevin in his story also said, like, how many sunny, flat, sunny cities with flat surfaces? So, you know, it seems like they're opportunities to expand are huge, which is true, but you do have to think about like weather conditions and these are not great for every city. No, Chicago in in February is never going to sure. have a scooter because it's literally under 25 feet of snow. And I know that because I used to live there, but I mean, Denver, great place for this when it's not, when not, not too wet. I would ride these in Boulder, Austin, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans. Well, not New Orleans, sidewalks are terrible, but any place you have smooth tarmac and sun, it's going to be great. One thing I wonder about is if someone decided to make a really lightweight, really good personal scooter that one would buy instead of hope to rent, you know, for two bucks a ride. Right now, uh, you know, the the scooters that are used for these share programs are fairly big and heavy because they have to accommodate a battery for all day riding. But if you put a stick on a boosted board, would you have a pretty portable personal device? I don't. I don't dislike that at all. A coworker of mine at the office actually brings in his heavy electric scooter to the office. He's the only person, but like he, it's enormous though. Yeah, he, they're a little heavy still. It weighs, that's like, why it I weighs think this, a lot. Yeah. The share model makes sense, but but can we get there? Yeah, I, I hope so. But they have four hundred and fifty million dollars in act between Bird and Lime if both these rounds close where we're expecting them to, and that's non inclusive of any potential debt, which has also been reported as a possibility for Lime. So. Um, I don't we're gonna see it's a, yeah, it's a lot of money. I, I, I think I think a year from now we're gonna be talking about much bigger numbers too. I mean, if it's anything like the rideshare race. But what's interesting too about these companies, I you know, just keeping the, the I feel like it's great marketing for them, <laughs> this sort of constant sort of you know, talk about their capital raises. I don't know how much of it is sort of leaked intentionally by people involved with the companies, but it's a great way to sort of keep them I, I feel like that really helped Uber in ways and Lyft to sort of you know they were top of mind constantly. For sure. They, they got endless earned media mm -hmm. just because everyone found them fascinating. Right. And scooters and the because we use them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're going to show up a lot more in the media. And uh, they're great for Reddit fodder. Um, now, the, I, I do think the moves by uh, Uber and Lyft to be in this game and, and be true multimodal between cars, bikes, scooters is, is really smart because, you, you know, we all sort of trade off cost and availability and uh, how much time it's going to take to get through downtown traffic. So sure. th this is only getting more exciting. 
So now, if scooters are the fun thing to talk about because everyone really understands them, the opposite of that is an SEC <laughs> filing uh, because nothing is more dry and dull than an SEC filing. Happily, though, we have a good one for you this week, and uh, we have the right guest for it, too. Um, so Data Miner, a company uh, that is not spelled the way you think it is. There's no E, so it's Data Miner. Kind of, <laughs> I believe it's pronounced Data Miner, um, has raised, uh, per an SEC filing, just over $221 million, dollars. $221,055,490 to be exact. And according to Crunchbase, that brings their aggregate fundraise to just over four hundred. dollars And I believe you volunteered to tell us what they do, because Vinrock is an investor. We are, and it is a very interesting company, a little below the radar. Uh, it's more of an enterprise play. And uh, essentially, they comb uh, these vast public data resources, uh, everything from the Twitter uh, feed to uh, weather, traffic, airlines, blogs, massive, massive real-time data sets, and try and find signal that a event is happening, an event that would be interest to uh, public safety, to government, to news agencies. To hedge to, funds. To hedge funds, to corporate security, a variety of things. And they, they take great pride in, in, in being able to see these events before, let's say, the AP Newswire or before even local authorities are aware. It's a fascinating um, company, and it's an interesting space. It doesn't seem like, I'm sort of surprised there aren't more direct competitors. Um, I, I know that there's sort of a handful, but as, as below the radar as Data Miner is, these are really, really below the radar. Uh, but for the company, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but it seems like one of the best things to happen to this company has been Donald Trump. Um, you know, as they say, life happens on social media first. And this guy is tweeting like crazy. You know, I hate Amazon. Oh, I can't wait to see the jobs report. Well, I mean- but, but there's there's a disconnect between what he tweets and it actually an event happening, right? right? It's sort of like fake events. Well, surely uh, they can tell when it's the anti-signal, right? right? Like Trump says X, then Y will happen, therefore. I mean, hopefully they can figure that but out. But I think it did. I think his tweets about Amazon did impact the share price for a time. His uh, tweets about the jobs report an hour before it was released. Saying I'm looking forward to reading this, even though I think they these reports or the pre-release numbers are giving to, to presidents right. like the night before. Um, but that was a you know big indication. The to thing the about that is an example, though. That that's a little. Um, uh, uh, sort of orthogonal to their real value prop because everyone because follows, everybody saw everyone that. follows right, Donald. Right, right. Uh, you know, a better example would be uh, at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago when they had the big blackout because the transformer blew. People mm-hmm. didn't know what it was. Was this a terrorist attack or, or something, you know, really, um, really scary? And they were able to triangulate a number of tweets from people who were near the transformer or at the event, correlated to other uh, global sources, and realized that, yeah, it was. It was was nothing to be terribly right. uh, worried about, and and this happens on a weekly basis for well, them. Sure, and and so I'm sure you could probably have many great stories about the company that aren't public, but um, with regard to sort of government services now, so they are the FBI and the CIA, I believe, are customers, or I think I'd read that in the Intercept uh, at some point. I can I can check if the CIA is an investor. Is Incutel an investor? Do we know? Oh, yes. I think maybe it is in Qtel. If Inquitel is an investor, we, we know that the government's put money into this. But I do. I'm going to let you find that one on your yeah. own and <laughs> tell you about the news agencies and the corporate <laughs> security. Actually, so actually, that, that answers my question of who is this uh, Who is this really targeted for. But I presume this is something you would sell to a large client. This is not something for uh, smaller companies to buy into. 
Um, largely true, although uh, fire and first responder in these local municipalities find it very, very useful uh, for kind of the local level events that occur, you know, all the time. So I think the, the service can be scaled down. It's one enormous data set, and then you're looking for different types of signal for your different constituents. Mm-hmm. What a news agency wants and a fire department wants could, could be different. Right. Well, there is, uh, we live in the world an era of big data, and so someone has to actually sift through it all, and now data miner at a minimum has a capital advantage. Uh, but ne- the question that I'm curious about what happens next for these data-focused firms is what happens with future government regulation, and how does it impact business models that are predicated on taking in lots of public data and then kind of generate insights off of it um, in real time? I'll be curious to see if that changes uh, anytime in the future. But I think that is all the time we have for this okay, week, so thank you all for tuning in, and uh, we'll be back in seven days. Sounds great. This thank you, Brian. Fun. Thank you. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Matthew Lindley, Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. 